Uh, apologies to the PowerPoint guys. That's all uh, probably my fault. Uh, Hebrews 3 and uh, Exodus 17 were both down uh, and um, didn't, wasn't make clear to you guys what we were reading. Uh, but it would help to have a Bible this morning. If you didn't get a Bible first time around, I'm sure someone will bring you a Bible if you put your hand up. Uh, we will be jumping around a little bit to a few different passages. So I'll have your, your phone handy or your, your Bible handy. Uh, that would be really, really helpful. Uh, also, if you're Fusion, you probably want one of these. Uh, hopefully you got one on the way in. If not, grab one now uh, and a pen or pencil. There's some helpful things to help you uh, listen and understand uh, what we're doing today. Uh, for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Andy Winter. I'm a member here at the church, uh, and it's, um, it's great to be able to speak uh, from God's Word this morning. This morning. Um, it's a fantastic thing. It's been a blessing to me to prepare. I hope it's a blessing to you uh, now. So let, let me pray for us as we tuck into God's Word. Father God, we thank you so much that uh, you promised to speak through your Word. We thank you we have access to it now. We can have it open in front of us. And we ask as we stop and we think, as we contemplate and reflect on the things that you say, you give us hearts that are so ready to hear them, hearts that are thirsty for you, that we might be um, you know, fulfilled in all that you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so do, uh, welcome to keep a finger in Hebrews 3, but you actually turn to Exodus 17, and that's on page 75 of the church Bibles. We will be hitting there first, and we'll come back to Hebrews 3 towards the end. So 75, page 75 on the, on the church Bibles, uh, Exodus 17. I've been thinking about uh, bad habits uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, I've had to ask a friend, because I don't have any. Um, but it turns out, uh, it turns out to get a, a new habit in place takes about 12 weeks. To break a bad habit... Well, there's a number of different uh, numbers given. Uh, the best I could see was from a study that said it's from um, between 8 and 258 days to break a bad habit. It depends on what the habit is. Uh, disturbingly precise, isn't it? 258 days. I don't have enough time to break all my bad habits before I, I, I kick it, I think. Uh, I've just got too many. It would take 258 days each time. But fundamentally, uh, apart from the habit itself, what determines the, uh, the amount of time uh, and the success rate is, of course, how much you really want to change. Uh, you really want a change of heart, and therefore a change of habit. Do you really want to change? And, and maybe it is that, you know, uh, smoking, telling dad jokes, biting my nails, leaving towels on the floor, making TikToks, and listening to Taylor Swift are habits I just don't want to break. <laughs> In which case, they aren't going anywhere. Uh, fusion, uh, do you ever leave your wet towel on the floor of your bedroom. Well, that won't shorten your life expectancy unless your mum gets really fed up and throws in the washing machine with the towel, but it is a bad habit. Smoking, on the other hand, is distinctly unhealthy, isn't it? It will worsen your health and reduce your life expectancy. That is a bad habit, objectively, a bad habit you need to break. So I'm looking at Exodus chapter 17 today. Uh, yeah, it'll all come clear at the end. Uh, we might uh, jump around a little bit, so keep that, uh, that, that Exodus 17 open. We're looking to see, can the Israelites break a bad, possibly a fatal habit that they're starting to form as they relate to the God who rescued them? So um, uh, we've been seeing uh, God's people in the book of Exodus. The sort of narrative arc is something like this. Uh, God's people were in slavery, but the Lord has kept his promise to Abraham and called his descendants to come out of Egypt. Pharaoh resisted. But God ultimately overcame with uh, you know, miraculous signs of judgment. 
They left through the Red Sea, uh, which, uh, God bringing the final curtain down on Pharaoh and his army. Okay, they are now rescued. They are free. Let me swap hands for a second. Uh, as we continue the ark, um, they now head down to the mountain to hear from God, to worship God on his mountain, and then into the promised land uh, at the end of it. If this was a Hollywood action romance movie about people, here's where they'd ride off into the sunset. However, unlike what every movie shows, there's always a lifetime of relationship which has just started. Wouldn't that be depressing? Every romantic kind of comedy, uh, whatever, you, you had, the sequel was 20 years later. Well, here is God now relating brand new to a whole people group. So far in the Bible, we've seen him relate to individuals. Now he relates to a whole nation. They start great promise ahead of them when they get to the mountain in chapter 19. But between now and then, there are some big internal and external threats. So chapters 15 to 18, there are three grumbling stories about food and water. There's an Amalekite ambush, and there's a leadership issue. And so Exodus 17 is part of the pattern of complaining against God. Once, you could say it's an incident. Twice, coincidence. Three times is a pattern, a bad habit. And it will wreck things if not stopped. This is not a wet towel on the floor thing. This is, this is smoking 40 a day. Let's just connect those, uh, those three things, these three incidents between 15, 16, and 17, with the thread of how God is relating now to this new nation of Israel, to his people. So in, in uh, 15, verse 26, so I've just worked out why my notes are so blurry. Hang on. Oh, yeah, there they are. Um, <laughs> chapter 15, verse 26, uh, after he's made the toxic spring... Uh, drinkable, he tells them he's going to treat them differently than the Egyptians. Um, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, Yahweh, who heals you. So there's diseases, the judgments on the hard-hearted Egyptians, and there's healing in the response of blessing which is connected with obedience. That's how they're to relate to God. And obedience is the opposite of being hard-hearted, just as healing is the opposite of disease. The Lord, the just and holy God, says, here's a people I I will treat differently than the Egyptians. So uh, the rescued people of God should become the obedient people of God. Uh, There you go. They're on it. They're on it. They've got up there already. Um, God gives them uh, this law and decree in verse 25 of chapter 15. We don't know what it is. I'd love to know what it is. But what we do know is it's there to test them. And that's another repeated theme of these three incidents. God is testing them. So in chapter 16, verse 4 as well, and 16, verse 28, God says he's testing his people. Uh, Verse 28, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? There's a a sense of exasperation there. Here's this good thing you just won't take hold of. How long will you refuse? How can they keep trying to trash this relationship? How long to see what they're really doing? Because God isn't testing them to find out stuff about them that he doesn't know. He's testing them to show them their hearts. Uh, So uh, I'm a teacher and uh, I teach, teach maths save you booing for later. 
Um, but I was uh, aware that there were three boys in one of my classes who every time one boy at the back was speaking or said something or asked a question, were making some little noises or saying his name in a funny way, and, and they, would, they would turn and look at him, and I just thought, this is, this is not good. This is, this is sort of subtle but ongoing bullying. So I had the three boys back after one lesson and just said, um, we'll call the other kid Bob, um, you know, uh, what do you do when Bob speaks? Oh, sort of make noise or something, say his name, yeah. Uh, what do you do whenever he, he does something unusual? Oh, how do you think he feels about that? Oh, he, he finds it funny. Why is that? Because he laughs. If he found it really unfunny and hurtful and painful, what would he do outwardly? He'd laugh. And I could see one of those great teacher moments. I could see the wheels starting to turn in their heads. It was a great moment. I was not asking the questions I did not know the answers to. The point of asking those questions was to get them to think about what their hearts, what their actions were doing. Well, God tests his people to show them that they need to change. They need to respond to obedience. That's how this new relationship is going to work. It, he is, after all, the Lord. He is the God who rescues and cares for his people. They're to respond in obedience. And chapter 16, verse 35, is the final sort of segue into uh, chapter 17. And there's a first hint there that things do not go well for a long time for God's people. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. So right up front, we don't even know why yet in the book. We know they don't reach land for 40 years. 40 years of Frosties and chicken nuggets. Well, it's manna and quail, but in my head it's Frosties and chicken nuggets. I think that would do anybody in. Uh, but let's actually read Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7 seeing as that's what we're actually going to look at today. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, pure coincidence that name, uh, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Know how they're the same thing there. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand a staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? If you've been here last week, I'm sure the similarities jumped out at you straight away. Very similar to chapter 15. A difficult circumstance, they have a need for water, a genuine need, a genuine threat. The same response of complaint rather than trust in verse 3. You know, Moses, the Lord, the same thing there, aren't they? Wants to kill us. That's their conclusion. We're out of the desert with no water. God wants to kill us. God doesn't care. He doesn't exist or he's evil. That's their immediate conclusion. 
Is there a different expression of complaint in verse 4? They seem ready to stone Moses this time. Having accused God of being murderous, ironically, they're the ones ready to pick up stones and throw them. And jump to the end of this passage here. It's always helpful to jump to the end to see what goes on in the middle. If it's a murder mystery, it's cheating. Otherwise, it's okay. But look at verse 7. He called the place Massa and Meribah, quarrel and testing, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? It is just so wrong for these people to test the Lord, to pick a fight with him. This is the God who is, who is right and righteous, who is holy and perfect. The Bible has to invent a word for God's goodness, holy. And their crime is immortalized in the name of this place, quarrel and testing. That's how it's known now. You can say to people, oh yeah, three miles down the road, past quarrel and testing, you'll find. It's like if a couple were showing you their holiday photos and you said, oh, that's lovely. Where was that taken? They said, oh, we just called it the hotel, the name calling and face slapping. You'd be going, ooh, that wasn't a good holiday. So what is God's response? Well, in verses 5 and 6, God supplies them with what they need. They don't die. They get water. God is patient and kind here. He has every reason to be angry. And later on, as we read through, we'll see for exactly this sort of response by the people. The last person who was as hard-hearted toward God as the people appeared to be going was Pharaoh. And we know how that turned out. So I think we're, we're expected to see that there's some tension here. You know? Uh, there's contrast here. What will happen? We know how God should respond. We saw that in Egypt, but instead we see God acting differently towards these people. So over these three instances of lack of water, lack of food, lack of water, it's clear they haven't learned. And we can see it all again in the book of Numbers. The rescued people of God should become the obedient people of God, but they don't. What do we, uh, what do, we do with that? as believers in Jesus today. Well, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I will get to Hebrews 3 eventually, I promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is really helpful uh, in looking at some of these things. Um, it's on page 1151 in your church Bibles. If you want to turn to it, but I'll just read a couple of verses. Uh, you don't need to have it in front of you uh, if that would be unhelpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6 says this, and now these things, talking about you know, exactly what we've been reading, occurred as examples to keep us, believers in Jesus, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So Israel in the wilderness is not a, a direct analogy of the Christian life, but it is an example, uh, an example of what the human heart does without intervention. This grumbling is to, put, is to reject the good God and put your trust, your hope, your desire in something else instead. And because of that, it is evil is an evil thing. It's not neutral. It's always an evil thing to reject God's goodness. And maybe if you've been here a few weeks, maybe you've been listening really well and you are feeling just how thin and fragile your heart appears to be. How, how weak it is its love and obedience for the God who rescued you in Jesus. Well, verses uh, 11 to 13 of 1 Corinthians 10 help us. These things happen to them as examples, written down as warnings for us, for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come, i.e., we, we now know Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again to life. 
and will return that we might be with him. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. I love these verses. They're so realistic, aren't they? If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, expect to be tempted to doubt God, to grumble, and to rubbish his blessings. Expect that temptation. Don't believe you have discovered a disobedience of heart towards God that is somehow unique and beyond the pale. Verse 13 tells us no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. We will have this common temptation to do exactly this. And the greatest danger, it seems, is those who think they stand firm. You might be thinking, well, I'd like to have confidence in Jesus, so I should have confidence, but not too much. Is that what this is saying? No, no, no. It's talking about saying those who think in themselves they stand firm. It's the opposite of the cross. When we put our trust in Jesus as a crucified Savior, we abandon confidence in ourselves. I can't do it, God. I can't be good enough. I can't be righteous. I need Jesus. I need to put my confidence in Him that He can provide me with the righteousness I don't have. But for those of us who think we've had it, uh, got it all sorted in the Christian life, maybe we've got great prayer habit, fantastic quiet time routine. Maybe we've been a Christian a long time. Maybe we've given leadership in things and responsibility, and people say how well we do things. Uh, actually, we can end up trading confidence in Jesus for confidence in ourselves. And that is the exact opposite. When it says, be careful those of you who stand firm, that's what it has in mind. But know that God can and will keep you enduring. Uh, verse 13 tells us, God is faithful. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There is always a way to endure as a Christian. It's not a, not a way out so that it stops, but a way out so you can keep on enduring. So friend, does, does it pain you to have such a heart that needs these words? That loves Jesus and yet so tempted to do things on our own strength to love other things, to grumble about what we don't have. Does it pain you to have such a heart? It pains me. But this side of heaven, that will always be the case. So isn't it good to know that God knows that? God knows that. And he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 10 and Exodus 17, etc., for me and for you, that we know he knows and that he does provide us with a way to endure. It is a great thing. Your heart, however you feel about it, is not beyond God's knowledge and care. Right, let's turn back to Exodus 17, see a couple more things that might be helpful to us and our hearts. It's page 75, if you've lost it in the church Bibles. Uh, we said what is similar in chapter 17, in, uh, from 15 to 16 to 17. Um, what is different? Uh, well, I think it's the presence of a patient God. So in verses 5 and 6, Moses does as the Lord instructs him with that staff. Uh, that staff is, is a visual aid. It, it doesn't, it's not magical in itself like a Harry Potter wand. Uh, but it's a sign that God is doing something. It was there for the ten plagues, the miraculous signs in Egypt. Uh, it was there for the passage to the Red Sea. When the staff comes out, the people of Israel to look and say, Ah, uh, here is God about to do something. And verse 6, God stands with Moses at the rock. I don't know if you, you missed that as I read it. I missed it the first three times. 
Uh, we don't know if God's presence was visible or not. Chapter 16, verse 10, it was visible in the cloud. Here, I'm not sure. But it struck me this. Remember back in chapter 3, probably not, it's a long time ago, chapter 3 of Exodus, a place called Horeb, uh, a wandering, exiled shepherd Moses came across a burning bush, which was the presence of God, and God spoke to him. And here at a place called Horeb, he's now present as the water gushes from a solid rock, enough to supply hundreds of thousands of people and animal. And it's important that God is present because that's their complaint in verse 7, isn't it? Is the Lord among us or not? Yeah. He is exactly among you, supplying what you need. And this is going to become really important what's next in, in uh, verse 8 onwards when they, uh, they're attacked and for the first time have to fight. That same staff gets lifted up for all to see on the mountainside as they're fighting. If the staff remains up, they can see the effect of the Lord with them because they win. If it's dropped, they can see what it would be like not to have the Lord and they start losing. God gives them a clear visual sign of the difference of having the Lord with you or not. And chapter 17 is helpful for me. I think it, it, it reminds me that there is God standing in the midst of his people, supplying their needs and being patient, holding back his judgment on their testing and their quarreling. As the end of chapter 16 hinted, God's going to be patient with them for 40 years, holding back on them. And there are times when he doesn't. They, they complain, they grumble, they go against him, and, and he breaks out in judgment against them uh, as a sign, this is what it would be like to have a holy God among you who is not patient with your sin. Uh, and they weep and they turn back to God. God is wonderfully and terribly at the center of their camp. And what he does, which we read later on. Is that the same for us today? Well, No. Wonderfully, no, because the rescued people of God are dependent on the person of Jesus to be our living water and our presence. So I'm going to turn to uh, what was read at the beginning of the service, John chapter 7, uh, verse 37. Fusion, this is a verse on your sheet, I think a memory verse for you. It's page 1072, if you want to turn to it in your church Bibles. Uh, we did look at John chapter 6 last week and saw that Jesus deliberately uh, drew the miraculous provision of bread to the 5,000 to explain that actually he was the one who was greater than Moses and more important than manna in Exodus chapter 16. He was the one who gives eternal life. So we already had that link drawn for us. And now in chapter 7, Jesus uh, doesn't go to the festival uh, of tabernacles initially. He slides in about a couple of days in quietly. And here's a festival of... Tabernacles, festival of booths, your, your Bible might say. It's a week-long festival in which the Israelites uh, camped out in the back garden in temporary shelters to remember their time in the wilderness. Exactly this. They spent a week doing that. I can imagine that um, there might be a little bit of a friendly competition. Some of the, perhaps, particularly the dads there, looking over the fence going, oh, they've got a good shelter. Yeah. And, oh, Bob, that, you had that in last year, didn't you? You just brought that out of the attic. You meant to build a new one each year. Come on, you know, there might be a little friendly competition there. But it would be a great fun time in lots of ways for the kids. I imagine the kids would love it. But all the time during that week, whatever else they're doing, they're meant to be remembering their time in the desert, so in the wilderness. And uh, when Jesus starts teaching the temple halfway through, uh, people have this um, quite aggressive discussion. Is he the Christ? So... On the last, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He's not talking about a lifetime supply of Buxton Spring mineral water. Verse 39 explains, By this he meant the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to this time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Spirit of Jesus Christ opens hearts and minds to see Jesus and respond to Jesus and so live for Jesus. And he shows us how wonderful the death of Jesus is for us and how glorious a promise the resurrection is. That's why he can't come universally to all believers until after the resurrection. Our hope isn't in God's patience like the Israelites. Our hope is in God's rescuer. The Jesus who says, life is in me, only I can quench your soul's thirst, dies on a cross. He takes everything rotten about your heart and my heart, everything hardened, everything blackened, and says, okay, God, treat me like this is my heart. And God does. He takes on hell for us, all God's judgment, and eternity's worth for me, and for you, and for you, and for you. At the cross, God stops being patient with his people's sin. And that is a good thing. That's exactly our hope, isn't it? That God has stopped being patient and deals with the problem of sin in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, come to me and drink, it's life. Because he takes our death. We give him this pathetic, dangerous, rebellious heart. And he gives us his spirit. His permanent presence with us. We need never ask, is the Lord with us or not? No, he is. If you put your trust in Jesus, he is with you by his spirit. Isn't it wonderful that God isn't patient with you at the moment, holding back his anger? It's all been on Jesus. He, he is patient for the rest of the world who does not yet believe in Jesus. There is, there is right judgment waiting for, for everybody else. And he is patient in that sense, but he's not patient with his children in the same way. The anger is spent. We are his for eternity. Never thirsty again. That's such wonderful things, isn't it? And we could sit and we could think and reflect and just take in those great truths of the Bible. But you might ask, are there some practical things we can do to help us with this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I haven't come to Hebrews 3 yet, have we? If you want to turn to it, it's page uh, 1202 in the Church Bibles, Hebrews chapter 3. and read a couple of verses. And he's written to Christians who have put their trust in Jesus. It quotes Psalm 95, which is uh, the Holy Spirit's wonderful uh, reflection on the people uh, of Israel in the wilderness. And comes to verse 12. And uh, we see the example of Israel and we heed the warnings. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Just very, very briefly, I want to say three things that may be helpful, practical things for us to do. They all begin with E, somehow, I don't know how that happened. Um, they expose, encourage, and endure. 
from these verses, 12 to 14. Expose. Uh, verse 12 invites us to expose the deceitfulness, sorry, verse 13, of deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives, doesn't it? That's the first thing sin has to do, to persuade you to go along with it. Okay, as a believer in Jesus, sin has to, has to deceive you, has to deceive, has to dim the glory of Jesus, has to tell you his cross isn't entirely necessary, it has to tell you that this doesn't matter so much to Jesus. It tells you that actually this is a bit neutral. It tells you you deserve some time off from being such a good Christian. Sin has to deceive you. It has to make you double think. And here is, uh, verse 12 is not to us individually. I think verse 12 is a collective responsibility. We help each other to spot where sin is deceiving us into double thinking. Wrong truths about God. Wrong things about ourselves. Expose the deceitfulness of sin. And we need each other to help us do that. Uh, encourage one another. Verse 13. Uh, encourage. We don't go around pointing fingers and say, oh, that's an issue. You need come on, do better. Be better. No. We walk with each other and point each other to Jesus. That's what it means to encourage. That is Christian encouragement. Telling someone their hair looks nice is encouraging, but it's not Christian encouragement. If your encouragement has the word nice in it, it's probably not that. If your encouragement has the word Jesus in it, it might well be Christian encouragement. Encourage one another. We need it, says verse 13. How often do we want to expose and encourage? Well, if it's today, the verses tell us. Until Jesus returns, but it's helpful to think about it as being today. When you wake up in the morning, uh, what day is it? It's today. Well, I guess today's a great day in which I need to encourage a fellow believer to look at Jesus. I need to encourage them against sin's deceitfulness to them. And I need the same done to me. So expose sin's deceitfulness. And last one, endure. Verse 14, it's endure, not achieve. We come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Not, yeah, we come to the end if we get 38% more moral, 55% more fruit of the Spirit. doesn't say that. To keep going through the day, holding on to conviction that Jesus has died for me. He rose from the dead and I am in him, and he will return. Our original conviction, that is all that's demanded. Get up and do the same thing tomorrow and the next day, as long as it's called today. And the joy of sharing in Christ for all eternity is ours. The victory is to endure to the end. It's not to say, not to win and have all your troubles gone. The victory is to endure. I was praying this, I just felt, um, I felt it'd be good to talk to some older saints. Every year, there are less and less older saints, I'm discovering, um, older than me anyhow. Um, can I say, you've got lots of years of experience and service and faithfulness and prayer and, and all sorts of things behind you. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Don't stop now. Don't stop now. What was your original conviction? Hold fast to that. Don't be tempted to look upon your past as achievement or credit or time served. We're sorry if we assume sometimes because you're old and you look incredibly wise that you have life sorted and therefore you have everything in your Christian life sorted. Of course that's not true. That's not, not what the Bible says at all. So we're sorry if we don't encourage you to look to Jesus and endure. A few practical tips. How do, we, how do we live this life where we come to Jesus and we have streams of living water because we know the presence of God is with us? 
well, expose, encourage, and endure. Just a few practical tips. You can share more after the service uh, as well. Uh, we're going to have uh, the Lord's Supper now, and I think within that, uh, Steve's going to pray for various things uh, you know, to, to do with us as a congregation, as a group of believers. But um, yeah, let me just pray for us before that happens. Father, we do thank you so much for um, your word. We thank you for the, the stories you share with us uh, that are examples to us and warnings to us uh, that show uh, what it would be like to be without uh, you. And thank you that you show us what it's like to be with you. Uh, we're sorry, Father, when we get that wrong, when we make it a thing of our own pride uh, instead, when we, we're unnecessarily worried because we don't read your promises and take them to heart. Uh, and so, Father, we ask that you would uh, help us to keep reflecting on these things, uh, not to live a Christian life which is timid and scared, but to be reassured of your ongoing presence with us, of the victory of the Lord Jesus, uh, and that we would indeed uh, be encouraged until the day ends. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.